Welcome to today's RTMA for July 6th as we uh, roll into the second half of 2020. Uh, real GDP fell by 11.6% in April after a 7.5% decline in March. April's data represents the first full month of economic shutdown due to the spread of COVID-19. Across the entire economy, all 20 industrial sectors uh, were down, creating the largest monthly decline on record since data began being recorded in 1961. The economy is still 18.2% below February's level. And this just shows how far the COVID-19 measures have brought the economy down. Um, we know that uh, GDP is going to fall in the next coming months. We just don't know how far it's going to fall. So if 11.6% is the worst we're going to see, um, and we're hoping for a V-shaped recovery, this may not be as bad as we think. Now, the manufacturing sector fell 22.5% across all subsectors, as many factories operated at lower capacity or were shut down. The reduced activity in the manufacturing sector can be measured by the drop in the capacity utilization rate, which fell by 16.4% down to 55.9% uh, for the month of April. Durable manufacturing fell 29.2% following a 13.1% decrease in March. The decline was driven by the 49.6% decrease in transportation manufacturing. As automotive plants across North America remained closed, the output for motor vehicle and parts manufacturing plummeted throughout April. Aerospace product and parts manufacturing fell by 10.6%, fabricated metal products declined 27.7%, and machinery manufacturing was down 17.2%. Non-durable manufacturing fell 15.4% in April, as food manufacturing, which was currently up in March, dropped by almost 13% in April. And the decline can be traced to lower meat production uh, as many plants were closed due to the spread of COVID-19. Petroleum and coal products manufacturing fell by almost 25% as refineries continued to curtail production due to global oversupply, uh, falling prices and lower demand. The construction sector fell 22.9% as all types of construction activity were down. Non-residential construction declined by 36% as commercial, public, and industrial construction posted double-digit drops. And these declines were largely concentrated in Ontario and Quebec. Residential construction fell 22.3% as there were lower home alterations and improvements combined with lower multifamily dwellings and single family home construction. Real estate fell 3.5% in April, falling 1.2% in March, as the stay at home orders combined with uncertain and unemployment and deteriorating economic conditions um, kept many prospective buyers and sellers away from the market. Retail trade contracted 22.9% in April, as activity at brick and mortar stores fell across all subsectors. Motor vehicle, parts, motor vehicle and parts dealers contributed the most to the decline as the subsector as a whole fell by almost 
This is despite showrooms and service bays being considered essential services and remaining open in many parts of the, of the country. Activity at clothing and clothing accessory stores plunged more than 65%. Health and personal care stores dropped 18.3%. General merchandise along with food and beverage stores fell by 17.2% and 14.3% respectively, both after posting gains in March. Retailing activity at gasoline stations fell 18.3%. Even though many have seen energy prices fall, the demand from consumers and businesses remains weak. Public sector itself fell by 7.7% as all three components, education, healthcare, and public administration uh, were negatively impacted by the stay-at-home orders. Healthcare services dropped 10.4% as all health and social services were shut down, but the ambulatory healthcare services and hospital services were the main drivers of negative growth. Educational services fell 8.6%, with the steep decline in elementary and secondary schools as teachers, school boards, and families adapted to having to learn online. As some of you will know, that is a big challenge, having to uh, make sure all your kids get their homework done. Public administration fell by 4.3%, uh, and municipal governments and provincial governments saw administration fall but the federal government actually saw administration uh, grow by almost 2% as many people were able to work from home, uh, allowing service, services to remain open. So you can see here on a month-to-month-over-month -month basis, not great uh, numbers overall, steep declines across uh, real, GDP, excuse me, real GDP here in Canada as to be expected. How steep of the decline it will be, we are all unsure. We'll have to wait and see what May's numbers and even June's will, will dictate. If we see an increase or at least a slower decline in May, that'll be a good sign for the economy. But if we continue to see such a steep decline, um, we will have a really tough second quarter, which is to be expected. But if the market sees that um, current re uh, th that the reality outperforms expectations, it will jump, and it will jump fast. Now, looking at more data closer to where we are now, uh, building permits here in May, and the total value of building permits issued by Canadian municipalities jumped and rebounded by 20.2% to $7.4 billion after falling by 13.4% in March and 15.4% in April. This was the largest percentage increase since March of 2009, and it coincided with relaxed COVID-19 construction restrictions in Ontario, Quebec, and PEI. However, compared to um, the peak observed in January of 2020, we are still 20.4% below that level. Now, public health guidelines were in place across the entire country, but the policy changes in Ontario, Quebec, and Prince Edward Island um, more than had a positive impact on construction and the stay-at-home orders in across the rest of the country. In Ontario, several non-residential projects were restarted on May 4th, and the province moved into its stage one 
on May 19th. This includes a full resumption of all construction projects. In Quebec, all sectors of the construction industry went back to work on May 11th, and PEI saw new construction projects restart on May 1st. Due to these changes in policy, the largest increase in the values of permits were in Quebec and Ontario. PEI posted the largest gain in the value of permits amongst the Atlantic provinces and the largest percentage increase across the country of over 1,000% following a drastic drop of 88% in April. Residential permits rose in six provinces, growing by 18.7% to reach a national total of $4.8 billion. The vast majority of these gains were attributed to increases in the value of single-family home permits. Single-family home permits jumped almost jumped 37.5% to $518 million after falling by 34.6% in April. Seven provinces recorded single-family dwelling permit gains, led by Ontario and Quebec. So we're seeing permits offset um, the decline in the previous month, which is good for economic growth. The value of multifamily dwelling permits uh, grew by 9% to $2.9 billion, driven by projects in Montreal and Vancouver. Non-residential permits grew by 22.9%. Uh, commercial permits saw growth of 20.8% to $1.5 billion. Gains were driven high by Ontario and Quebec. Industrial permits grew by almost 58%, to $600 million, um, driven by a permit for a new Molson brewery in Montreal. And institutional permits posted their first gain of 2020, edging 2.8% higher to $544 million as post-secondary institutions led the way. So you can see here um, where the growth is and where the declines are in building permits. Um, main areas of growth are going to be Quebec and Ontario. Again, that's where most of the population is. Um, and we're seeing growth on both the residential and non-residential side. Interesting to note that across all five sectors, we're seeing growth, which is good for economic growth, which is good for people going back to work. And it'll be interesting to see um, how the different phases of, of reopenings will help economic growth. I know here in Manitoba, We've been not really hit at all in the last several months by COVID. I think we've had over 300 cases total. Uh, I think seven deaths, mostly of elderly people. So um, again, compared to Ontario and Quebec, we've barely been touched, but yet we're seeing a decline in residential starts and permits uh, because demand isn't there. So. It is going to be a fine line that the governments are gonna to have to walk in order to get growth going once more. And it's just a different representation of total permits. And you can see it's a, definitely a V-shaped recovery there. And we're hoping that this will translate into more economic growth across the rest of the sectors in May and June. Looking at trade, we can see compared to April, Canadian exports and imports were 25% down in April. May exports actually rose by 6.7%, but May imports fell by 3.9%. Exports grew by rising automobile production and, and parts production, as well as higher crude oil prices. Imports fell to supply challenges that can be traced to 
the rest of the world starting to reopen their economies. <coughs> now, this caused the national trade deficit to shrink from $4.3 billion in April to $677 million in May. In real or volume terms, export, exports grew by 3.8% and imports fell by 6.7%. Now, exports rose to $34.6 billion as gains were observed in eight of 11 product sectors. Non-energy exports were up 5.6%. However, over the last 12 months, exports have fallen by 34.1%. Now, the motor vehicle and parts subsector has begun to recover, but over the last 12 months, year over year, they're down by almost 80% compared to May of 2019. Exports of energy rose by 14.5% uh, as there were more crude oil exported. And as long as uh, combined with rising volumes, prices rose as well throughout the month. Exports of consumer goods rose 9.5%, driven by the exports of meat, which skyrocketed 26% as meat processing plants came back online. And U.S. meat processing plants are still down for the most part. So there's rising demand for meat uh, in the U.S., which is going to help our trade balance. Despite the pandemic, rail blockades, and trade disputes, Exports of this product section, uh, which is the, which includes farm and fishing, have been growing since the beginning of 2020. They reached a record high of 3.9 billion in May. Now, due to the drop in demand for shipping other goods, there has been increased availability on the Canadian rail system, which has allowed this subsector to grow to fit significantly throughout the month. Imports are down. 3.9%, $35.5 billion, as seven of 11 sectors reported declines. Over the last 12 months, total imports have fallen by 33%. Imports of basic and industri in industrial chemicals, plastics, and rubbers fell 14.4%, contributing the most to the overall decline of imports. Now, the Canadian oil industry uses uh, dilutants to ship heavy oil to the Gulf Coast. But because they're shipping less oil in, in the recent months, they're getting less dilutant coming back. So this suppressed import growth. Motor vehicle and parts dropped 77% in April and another 15% in May. Um, we're seeing less imports as economies are starting to reopen because auto plants are resuming production, are looking to meet domestic demand and demand in the US first before looking elsewhere. It is likely that they're gonna that foreign automakers will continue to prioritize US markets before Canada. If we look at countries aside from the United States, imports fell by 10% as production shutdowns around the globe and longer shipping times. Um, have shifted imports in the medium term. Imports from the UK of refined gold and motor vehicles from South Korea and Japan have all contributed to the majority of the decline. Imports from China have increased 6.2% for the third consecutive month to reach $4.2 billion. Exports to countries aside from the US rose 2.4% to 
due to higher exports to China of iron ore and crude oil, and France of aircraft and canola. Now, this has helped narrow the trade deficit with countries aside from the U.S. from 5.5 billion down to 3.5 billion in May. Exports to the United States, which is really what we're concerned about, rose almost 9% to $23.2 billion. Now, this is still 40% lower than the same time last year. But the gain has been driven by motor vehicle, uh, motor vehicles and parts, along with crude oil. Imports from the U.S. rose to 1.2%, but this still represents a 39% year-over-year decrease. This helped widen the trade surplus with the U.S. from 1.2 billion to 2.8 billion uh, for the month of May. You can see here the Canadian trade balance has shrank dramatically. Um, which is good, we wanna see this turn into a positive as much as we can, because uh, that'll really help Canadian growth overall. Exports are, again, we're seeing that V recovery, which is good, moving in the right direction. Imports are still shrinking, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, as we're seeing imports come in for the major uh, industries in Canada or we're seeing less consumer good imports, which is, which is showing, at least to me, that consumer demand just isn't quite there yet, as people are still concerned about unemployment and uh, where their next paycheck's gonna come from, if they're gonna get next paycheck, uh, if is gonna be continued or not, things like that. So people are, are focused more on saving, even though it's summertime and they're going out barbecuing, going to the lake and things like that, instead of spending on goods. Speaking of oil, we finally get some good news. And the Supreme Court of Canada last week ruled that they would not hear a new appeal from BC First Nations over the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The court dismissed the appeal from the four First Nation groups, uh, which I listed in the PDF notes, but I'm not even going to try and say because I have no idea, uh, to end the years-long battle over the project. Originally, the project was approved in 2016, but was stopped by the Federal Court of Appeal two years later after First Nations and environmental groups argued that the approval process was flawed. Now, after undergoing additional consultation and that affected in the affected communities, the federal government once again approved the project in 2019. But, the several, but there's, there were several bands which felt that they weren't fully consulted on the project. In February, the Federal Court of Appeal ruled that the approval would stand and that the government had made a genuine effort to hear and accommodate concerns. The First Nations groups were not happy with that, so they appealed to the Supreme Court. Their main concerns were about potentially contaminated drinking water and the effect, of, effect on marine life on the BC's west coast. In January, the Supreme Court ruled the BC provincial government did not have any authority to regulate what could flow between the pipelines as, a, as an inter-provincial project belongs under federal jurisdiction. In March, they declined to hear a challenge from environmental groups that were denied the right to appeal for the second time. Now, all this being said, the, the goal of the pipeline is to triple the amount of bitumen that's going to flow between the oil sands and the marine port in Burnaby, BC. 
Initially, the project was proposed by Kinder Morgan to twin the existing pipeline that carries both refined product and diluent, but it became a political symbol for the fight of whether Canada should use fossil fuels or try and combat climate change. The federal government bought the pipeline in May of 2018, was again delayed, but Trudeau has consistently tried to show that the project is vital to the Canadian economy. He believes that it can be a way that Canada can just transition to a cleaner and greener future. And using our resources to do that, help fund those changes is probably the way to go. Now, while most of the oil produced in Canada is sold at a steep discount to the United States, it is hoped that Trans Mountain will help raise Western Canadian select prices by shipping more oil to Asia. Now, while demand right now is currently weak due to COVID and the oversupply of oil, it's not going to stay like this forever. Eventually, things are going to go back to normal, where China will demand oil, um, Japan, etc. And these Asian countries are going to look to wean themselves away from Russian oil because of the politics associated with Russia. So if you can find yourself multiple sources of oil, if Russia turns off the taps as a political gambit, you can just continue to buy more oil from Canada. However, right now, because of the lack of demand, um, this isn't viable. But looking at our next point, we see that there is another reason for this pipeline and why it's going to be good for Canada. Now, Synovus is the first Canadian oil sands firm to announce it's shipping crude via the Panama Canal to Irving Oil's Lim Limited Refinery in St. John, New Brunswick. The entire Canadian industry, energy industry is looking to find new methods to ship product and reach new markets as energy prices continue to be crushed. Now, on July 1st, the company loaded a batch of crude at the Trans Mountain Terminal in Burnaby, BC. Here's that link. On the Cabo de Hornos tanker, which is now embarking on an 11,900 kilometer journey to the Canadian East Coast via the Panama Canal. Currently, it's a one off shipment. CVE is just trying this thing out. But Irving Oil expects that over time, will have the ability to create significant value for both companies and the country. Now, Irving Oil have been trying for years to get Western oil sands crude to Eastern Canadian refineries. They were part of the backers of the $15 billion Energy East project that was eventually canceled by TC Energy because they faced um, a high degree of opposition. The project, the Energy Eastland, was supposed to connect the oil sands to ports in Quebec and ultimately the St. John refinery and then on to Europe and beyond over the Atlantic Ocean. But again, sustained environmental groups and pressures from environmental groups and local groups forced TC Energy to cancel the project, even though Irving had committed to expand its port to at its uh, refinery. Now, Transport Canada has approved Irving's application to use foreign ships to source Canadian oil shipments. 
and um, this surprised many people because it suggests that this 11,900 kilometer route could be a viable alternative through the Panama Canal to get oil to the East Coast, which is in retrospect crazy. It just doesn't make any sense. However, Irving is planning to source Canadian oil from its Burnaby turn from the Burnaby Terminal, also moving down to the US Gulf Coast, which will allow it to get oil from the Keystone XL pipeline, which is currently under construction. And this could dramatically boost Western Canadian oil getting to Eastern refineries. Irving Oil has already announced that it is buying uh, the only refinery in Newfoundland and Labrador. And this is going to be part of a larger strategy to process more Canadian crude. So looking at the map, you can see here, this is what Energy East would have been. You know, one pipeline here to here. However, now because of the opposition, they're trying to ship oil from Burnaby, BC, all the way down through Panama up towards St. John. Ideally, from Irving Oil's perspective, it would stop off in the Gulf of Mexico, where Keystone is in the Louisiana Gulf Coast here, grab some more oil, and go all the way through here. So not only would you see increased exports, but you also see increase of value-added material being shipped from east coast of Canada to Europe or to wherever, really, across the Atlantic Ocean. So that's why we're that's why it's good that Trans Mountain is finally being built because they're gonna ship more oil to the West Coast. Keystone's coming down this way. It's just unfortunate that um, it has to go all the way around here to get it. Now, when things go back to normal, we could potentially see more traffic going from Burnaby out this way to Asia. And you could see Irving Oil just start chartering ships from Gulf of Mexico back up. And a much shorter trip, much easier trip, and uh, could be a way to get more oil exported. So I have to applaud energy firms for trying to find new methods to um, get rid of crude, increase pricing. But uh, it's really unfortunate that we have to take this almost 12,000 kilometer route just to ship some oil. When Energy East and Line 3 would have been a much easier method of doing that. Speaking of Alberta, uh, Premier Kenny is announcing a plan to counter the unemployment rate in Canada, in Alberta, sorry. The Alberta Recovery Plan is set to spend $10 billion in new infrastructure spending and cut the corporate tax rate from 10% to 8% uh, in order to stimulate the economy and create jobs. The corporate tax cut went into effect on uh, July 1st to help get things uh, moving quickly. Now, Premier Kenny acknowledged that the $10 billion in spending is not the maximum the government is willing to spend and that details of infrastructure spending will be announced over the next several weeks. 
There will be incentives and investments in the petrochemical sector, irrigation, and potentially even a high-speed rail link between Calgary and Banff to help boost tourism. They're looking to diversify and support the energy industry uh, and support agricultural industry with these measures. Analysts expect that the provincial economy is going to shrink by 8.5% in 2020, and the amount of job losses tied to COVID, combined with the collapse of energy prices and, and collapse in demand, have caused all the new jobs in the last decade to be erased. So over 330,000 jobs were lost so far, and this has pushed the unemployment rate in the province to 15.5%. When you include discouraged workers or those workers who are not even looking for work, we see the real, uh, real unemployment rate being pushed even higher, closer to 20%. Analysts are unsure of how effective cutting the corporate tax rate is going to be in terms of creating jobs. Um, as job growth in Alberta is tied to oil, and that is tied to the global economic conditions, which the province has very little influence over. But with ideas of shipping oil through the Panama Canal and things like that, we could see more job growth occurring faster than previously thought. Last but not least, we'll quickly look at some U.S. economic data. Uh, the ISM manufacturing report is a very important report and it's a major market mover. And in June, it was 43.1. Oh, sorry, in May, it was 43.1. And June, 52.6. And this indicates that more than half of American manufacturers indicate that they are growing. And manufacturing accounts for about 12 to 15% of the economy. So more than half are growing. That's definitely a good sign for economic growth. Demand, consumption, and inputs are reaching parity and are positioned for a demand-driven expansion cycle as the U.S. enters the second half of the year. Economists have been expecting a 49.5% reading, uh, but only five of 18 industries reported a contraction. Expansion was best amongst uh, textile mills, wood products, and other furniture-related products. Employment jumped from 32.1 in May to 42.1 in June. Production more than doubled from 24.1 to 57.3. New orders rose from 24.6 to 56.4. And prices increased from 40.8 to 51.3. Of these sub-indexes, only supplier deliveries showed a monthly decline, dropping by 11.1 points to 56.9. Now, the gains were surprising, as even though all 50 states are still reopening, um, some states have paused or rolled back the reopenings due to, to rising COVID-19 cases, especially in the South and the West. Um, quite a stark growth from April, May, and June, showing that the manufacturing sector is back on track. And this could be a solid sign for economic growth in the United States. Another positive sign was the non-farm payrolls report, or the jobs report. It surged 4.8 million new jobs in June, pushing the unemployment rate down to 11.1%. The US economy is showing resilience as it starts to recover from the COVID-19 outbreak. 
Now, analysts were only expecting an increase of 2.9 million new jobs and an unemployment rate of 12.4%. So to see these numbers uh, be beaten and beaten quite handily is fantastic. The jobs growth marked a significant leap from the 2.7 million jobs that were added in May, which was also revised higher by 190,000. The extraordinary jump in jobs helped propel the markets higher and will continue to push positive momentum throughout the rest of the week, hopefully. Um, as the, they're recovering from the July 4th celebrations, we hopefully will see some positive momentum in the U.S. markets on Monday. However, there are still some concerns. Initial jobless claims remain stubbornly high, sitting at 1.427. Uh, for the for last week, uh, continuing claims grew by 59,000 to 19.3 million, uh, and labor force participation rate, participation rate is good, showing 61.5% which is growth. So one of the main concerns over over employment over the next several weeks and months will be the quote unquote second wave of COVID. If uh, we see sustained uh, growth in the numbers um, that will cause places to shut down. Now, remember, the U.S. is testing extensively. So as more people get tested, we will see more cases. However, um, I think we're not going to see as many deaths at the same rate um, because people may just have lower, fewer symptoms, weaker symptoms as things go through. So non-farm payrolls moving in the right direction, uh, unemployment rate continuing to fall, and uh, hopefully this will be sustained. But my idea is, at least my thinking, we're going to see a bit of a plateau here because of the rising COVID cases that um, initial claims will remain around this level, will start to plateau, as not everywhere is going to open. And the places that think or thought they could open uh, are facing an economic reality of not being able to survive and being forced to close their doors completely. Continuing claims are remaining stubbornly high. Um, Congress is looking to add more to the uh, unemployment checks. They've already added another $600, $600 per check. They're thinking of sustaining that program and even potentially bumping it up even higher as we're seeing uh, things start to slow in terms of reopening. But people are looking to get back to work as we're seeing the labor force participation rate increase. So that is a positive sign. If consumer confidence increases, then the economy is going to recover. Once we see confidence start to fall, then we'll see, start to see a dip towards um, another recession. So that is it for us today. Have a great rest of trading week. Um, at least here in Manitoba and Winnipeg, it's been really gorgeous last couple of days. So trying to take advantage of that um, and uh, spend some time with your family. It's summertime. Make sure you do your, make sure you follow the trading plan and uh, enjoy the weather. Talk to you soon. Bye now.